Hey, it's Dave. Uh, welcome to a new live stream. So this morning, we've got actually a lot of interesting news to talk about. Um, we have the upcoming Starship launch, which is going to be the second um, attempt. I'm going to share kind of what I think is the historical significance of this launch and how to think of it. We have some new news that um, SpaceX might not be um, IPOing or taking Starlink public anytime soon. I'll share my take on why I think, yeah, this is um, a likely uh, probability. And then we've got some AI news. Uh, Microsoft has released or has announced a new AI chip. Um, we've got some uh, advancements in shrinking the whisper model, which is a speech to text model. And then we also have some um, interesting comments from Martin Vieca, the head of investor relations, talking about Tesla's new uh, growth wave that they're preparing. So um, I'll do a live stream. And then at the end of kind of just discussing some news items, we'll go ahead and take some um, viewer questions. I hope everyone is uh, doing well on um, this Wednesday morning. All right, let's go ahead and we'll, we'll head into um, kind of the first uh, news item here. And the first news item is um, Tesla Con Comics uh, posted a Bloomberg story saying that SpaceX is thinking about spinning off Starlink IPO as soon as 2024. And it's interesting because this is one of, I think, the most anticipated IPOs in the coming future. Uh, Elon has um, hinted at a IPO um, when Starlink's revenues get more stable, that Tesla shareholders would have priority. But it looks like uh, perhaps Elon has changed his direction. He says false. Um, SpaceX isn't, a, a repeat, is not thinking about taking Starlink uh, IPO soon. So I wrote a, a tweet on this and kind of shared why I think this is happening, how we could look at this. So first off, the whole reason to take Starlink IPO was twofold. One is to give liquidity to SpaceX employees. And the second is to raise cash. By raising cash, they could take that and um, fund um, basically a cash flow negative SpaceX, right, and their endeavors. And whenever they would need extra cash, instead of selling a large part of, let's say, SpaceX's stock, they could just liquidate, sell some of, right, uh, Starlink's uh, public shares. So that was kind of the concept and the, the idea behind why it would make sense for SpaceX to IPO Starlink. However, things have changed radically. Starlink has gone, I think, much better than most people expected. In fact, Starlink is killing it. It's really just um, going amazing. They have over 2 million uh, customers right now. Uh, they're Internet satellite constellation is growing. It's becoming more stable, more, more. Just the performance is increasing. It's basically the only game in town in terms of you know broadband satellite internet. And over time, it just looks like Starlink is way ahead. They're just really there's no really second place right in terms of what Starlink is trying to do. As a result of its kind of ramping and its customer acquisition, they're getting very very um, great economics. So um, the rumor or it's been reported that Starlink is perhaps going to, you know, provide the majority of uh, SpaceX's revenue if this year, if not next year. And, and it's going to be one of the main reasons why SpaceX is going to have up to, let's say, $15 billion in revenue in 2024. I mean, this is really, really fast um, growth for SpaceX. SpaceX is basically, basically their launch business and then Starlink. Their launch business is rather capped because there isn't a huge market in terms of um, the number of satellites that need to go into space. But St Starlink 
um, is becoming basically the cash cow and the, the big revenue generator for SpaceX. And so this solves a lot of problems for SpaceX. One is um, they don't really need a huge cash infusion now every once in a while because SpaceX is just bringing in a, tons of ca a, a ton of cash. And so there's no real reason to IPO Starlink and sell Starlink stock when you could just keep it right as part of your company. The second reason why um, it makes sense to probably keep uh, Starlink as as private is the whole scheme that Star or, or mechanism that SpaceX has in terms of giving liquidity to employees is the employees are allowed to sell the stock back to the company a couple times a year, and then um, what that allows the the employees to do is it allows them to get. Um, liquidity whenever they want. And over time, SpaceX has been able to kind of increase its valuation so employees are able to accrue, right, the the, um, the profits that they need. So this is good news um, in terms of SpaceX is that their um, ability to provide liquidity to employees is actually great. And so there's no real reason to um, IPO Starlink um, other than to give maybe perhaps additional liquidity to raise extra cash, but all of this comes at a cost where it adds complexity, is another public company for Elon to manage and all the drama. It just actually makes a lot more sense to keep them together. The other thing is SpaceX and Starlink are so intertwined, meaning a lot of SpaceX's expenses is the launch costs, right? And that's just, when you divide up these two companies, and it's like, okay, so does Starlink get preferential, I guess, launch cost, cost treatment? And how do you kind of account for that? And how much does SpaceX own of Starlink? And, and it just becomes kind of a mess, right? It's easier just to, I think, um, keep it as one company. Um, it is a bit sad that, you know, retail investors won't be able to access Starlink stock in the near future. Maybe, maybe later, you know, things will change. But that's kind of you know what's happening right now with the Starlink IPO. It's not the best news for, for retail investors, but it's the reality. It's probably better news actually for the vision and mission of SpaceX, which is to get to Mars and to make it in, uh, make a colony there, a self-sustaining one. And so I think, yeah, th uh, things are going amazingly well for SpaceX, especially with Starlink. And Starlink changes the game. It basically solves all their economic financial problems right for the long term for spacex this is hugely important as it it increases the probabilities that spacex will be successful right not just in reaching mars but in establishing a colony and eventually a self-sustaining one there all right so next up is we have um starship is launching again so this is um, a, a major crazy um historic flight here i just booked a flight a couple days ago right when i found out this is what uh, two days ago. So Elon said that he was just informed that they got that they're going to get approval before Friday uh, launch. So they're planning to do a Friday launch. Um, things, of course, might not happen. There's always possibility of delays and things, you know, um, not working out. So um, it's all conditional. But if it happens on Friday, this is going to be a historic launch because this is um, another chance for Star Starship to get up into orbit. But it's not, it's not just that, a lot of the milestones and a lot of things are waiting for a successful Starlink launch. Um, I kind of detail a few of these kind of milestones in a, in a Twitter post um, here. I say that, um, yeah, if SpaceX is successful, then they can launch larger payloads of Starlink, right? Their next generation Starlink satellites in mass. 
Um, it'll radically improve performance and capacity. Uh, number two, they can launch other satellites, right? Um, Third-party satellites, bigger ones into space as well. Number three, they could send a human uh, lunar mission uh, to the moon. Number four, they could start sending Starship to Mars, um, maybe with cargo and robots first. Eventually, of course, this will take some time. Um, and then eventually, the, this is laying the foundation for them to send uh, humans to Mars eventually too. So all of this is really dependent on getting a successful Starlink launch, right? And that's what's uh, so important about this Friday's launch. Um, it's amazing to see this in person. I went last year with my kids. It's just a huge sight, right? And to think that uh, humans are trying to create this crazy rocket, right, to go to Mars. Um, and also to think of it as like, it's from a private company. This is stuff of government scale, right? That in the past only governments could do, but here you have this scrappy co uh, private company that's trying to do what, you know, no government is able to do so far. And it's 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 super important, right? This is, we're talking about history scale right now in the making. Um, I hope you guys are able to tune in Friday morning um, for a possible launch of uh, Starship's second flight test. Um, if it's successful, I'm telling you, man, this is gonna be crazy. <laughs> We're in for some crazy times ahead. I was thinking about this concept of what are the, the most kind of history, historical things that are gonna happen in the next 10 years, right? And we have a lot of big ones, right? You have the whole, you know, march to artificial general intelligence. This is huge, right? The, the, the rise of intelligence um, outside of humans that not just get up to human level, but eclipse human level, not just in capacity, but in the sheer amount of intelligence. This is um, a crazy change. Um, you also have right autonomous driving and the application of humanoid robots, where you have this artificial general intelligence in a robot form, in a physical form. You have Starship, right? Um, Starship is, in the next decade, is gonna be amazing um, in terms of its impact historically. If you can get to Mars, get people to Mars, set up a colony eventually on Mars. Uh, maybe we have some new forms of energy um, as well. We have the whole, you know, um, um, bi uh, you have biogenetics where you can, you know, create new cures uh, for diseases using AI uh, to do that as well. Um, so you've got a lot of historic changes, I think, in the next 10 years. And Starship is definitely um, one of those, I think, in there. All right, let's go ahead and I want to talk about kind of Tesla's next growth wave. So you have this um, interesting comment by Martin Vieca. So he was at um, a uh, auto conference by Deutsche Bank. And a lot of these conferences, like they don't share the recordings. And that's, uh, that's to me, it's just a travesty. You know? um, yeah, I wish they would share all recordings that um, are done at investment conferences, right? I think all investors should have the same access to that type of information. I mean, on Tesla's side, they, they will say that no new material information was shared. And that's what that's how they need to handle it because um, new material information needs to be shared during earnings conference calls, during shareholder letters, during official right communication. These communications by kind of, you know, IR at conferences is not these official public release if, you know, uh, venues for material information. So in that sense, you know, Tesla will say no material information was shared, which could be, which is likely true too. So what Martin Vieck is saying is he's saying what he did share at this conference was that Tesla is in between two major growth waves. Uh, the first was driven by the three and Y platform. And um, the next one will be driven by the next gen vehicle. So it brings up uh, several interesting points or questions here. So 
if we're in this next generation or next growth phase or preparing for that, right, with the next gen vehicle, I guess the first question is when are we going to see this ramp, right? Um, when are the first next gen vehicles going to come off the line and how fast are they going to come off the line? Um, I think we know that they're probably going to come off the line in Austin first. My guess is we're pretty far ahead in terms of the whole process. Um, a lot of the design work has to do with not just the design of the vehicle and the design of making the vehicle ready for manufacturing and fast, right? It's the whole new unboxed um, uh, um, process right here where you basically work in chunks, right, to assemble the car and then bring the car together at the last, uh, last point. Um, so a lot of it is design. A lot of it also is the factory process, laying out the factory, preparing, designing machines, right? The machinery that's needed, and the and the the whole assembly line. All of this, all of this stuff needs to work. And there's a ton of engineering that Tesla is focusing on um, for this to make it happen. Um, after you do all of this, or you've got to send in, like, also um, work with all your suppliers to get all the specs for all your the. the, the various parts ready to make sure that they're ready to to manufacture at a certain level and, and timeline, et cetera. So there's a lot of moving parts. I think Tesla is like probably wrapping up on a lot of um, their design work, you know, for the vehicle and the factory. It's been probably happening all year, heads down. This has been their big manu uh, engineering focus. And as a result, I think probably by the end of next year, I would say, either end of 2024 or first half of 2025, I think that's the timeline where we, we're gonna see the first next-gen vehicle off the line, right? And then the ramping process should be fairly quick, I think, in my opinion. Tesla's not trying to make a Model X or Cybertruck out of this thing, right? They're trying to make a super simple um, car. And as a result, I think the manufacturing process is gonna be very, very simple. It's gonna be like you know, proven technologies. It's gonna be new processes for sure. It's not going to be anything that's too difficult to scale, right? That's the opposite of what they want to do. And so as a result, I think the, the ramp is going to be pretty fast. Um, I think we're going to see significant quantities probably in 2025. So what does this mean for kind of Tesla going forward? It means that, yeah, 2024 is kind of one of these years where you have the Cybertruck, which gives a lot of excitement. Um, unfortunately, I don't think Cybertruck is going to drive a ton of volume in 2024 just because the ramp is going to be difficult, in my opinion. It's a hard car to make and it's a hard car to get right or truck. Um, and what 2024 can provide for Tesla is kind of a respite to make things more efficient, bring down costs, bring up margins, right? kind of uh, improve full self-driving with V12, increase take rate of FSD, kind of get their financials better, um, and then prepare for this next wave of growth, right, for the next gen vehicle. I think um, in some ways, perhaps Tesla could have released another vehicle this, uh, or, you know, in 2024, maybe like a Tesla van, a cargo van. That would have been interesting. It would have provided maybe a kind of an in-between um, between these two growth waves. But in my opinion, I think a lot of the, the reasoning is, with full self-driving and the eventual release of true autonomous driving, a lot of these other things don't really matter a ton. Meaning, sure, you could you know make human-driven you know semis or human-driven vans or human-driven this or this or this, but in the end, if you truly have full self-driving right cars and trucks, 
what you want is you want to scale that. You want to scale fully autonomous cars, fully autonomous trucks, fully autonomous semis. You want to go crazy with that because it's a, a new infrastructure. It's a truly a, a new product, right? Um, I think a lot of it is, you know, Tesla is preparing and getting ready for that big launch in terms of true the their next big wave isn't just the next gen vehicle. The next big wave, I think, is the, is autonomous vehicles, right? When Tesla launches like crazy and is not able to keep up with the growth because demand is so high because they have truly autonomous vehicles. Now, this is all, of course, predicated on the assumption that Tesla is going to solve fully autonomous vehicles, right? And in, in a reasonable time frame. So that's the big news. I think of 2024 actually is as they prepare for the next growth wave is are they going to solve full self-driving uh, with true autonomous hands-off driving? Um, is this going to be a V12 thing? Is it going to take longer? Um, lots of questions um, in store right, for um, Tesla uh, coming forward. Um, here's a tweet from Squ uh, Squawk Square. He likes to trade Tesla. He says he just covered his short. I think he shorted yesterday um, and he took some loss. Um, win some, lose some. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I think it kind of highlights like you could trade here and there, but it's extremely difficult to get all the ups and all the downs right. Like who would have thought, like for example, let's take um, Tesla right now, you know, uh, just to take the past month, right? You had kind of disappointing earnings, you had, you know, gross margins down, all this stuff. People were thinking that, oh, you know, Tesla's going to be not just sub 200, but, you know, some people are thinking, oh, 150, whatever. Um, the economy, you know, next year doesn't look the most, um, doesn't look that great. Lots of talk of recession. Um, and you would imagine Tesla would, would sink for a long time, right? 200, sub 200, I don't know what. But then you have this big rally. And a lot of it is like uh, on different circumstances, like you have the Fed you know, signaling like, yeah, they're pretty much done raising rates. And then you have inflation pretty much dead. So you have, you know, this whole anticipation now the Fed will have to lower rates, which is good for growth stocks, people getting out of, right, bonds um, into stocks more. And um, a lot of people were on the sidelines waiting for, you know, something to happen to get back into uh, equities. And so a lot of stuff fuels growth that is not even related to Tesla, right? It's kind of beyond Tesla's control in a sense. And so it's kind of, um, this shows to me in some ways, it's like, if you're going to trade in and out, like, I, you know, that's up to you. And if you're able to do it, that's fine. Personally, for me, I find it very difficult with extreme confidence to, to really know if it's going to stay down, stay up, whatever. I rather prefer kind of a longer term view. Um, I know there's going to be lots of ups and downs over the next five or 10 years. I know there's going to be lots of challenges, et cetera, um, lots of financial struggles or financial turmoil in the markets up and down, but also there'll be exuberance, right, as well um, in times. And so throughout the whole thing, like I'm looking for more of a constant, who is, what are the companies that are making the most uh, pro progress in innovative tech and really pushing products and services that are making a difference that people really want they're really differentiated um, and that can they can capitalize on and so when i look at that um yeah um to me that's more of a stable thing that i feel like um, i have a better chance at um assessing all right here microsoft says they in, they're introducing their own chips uh, this is just came out this uh, today at their um uh conference called ignite 
and, and it's, I don't think it's initially going to be something that competes directly with NVIDIA. It's probably going to be something that used right in, in house with their servers, with their Azure, Azure service, uh, something over time, over multiple generations, they can get up, maybe, um, taking more and more of the, of the compute, especially the, the, the training compute, right? That's just crazy. I'm, they're looking at, you know, just billions and billions of dollars that OpenAI is, is spending in terms of training compute to build their, to train their models. And so OpenAI has kind of firsthand access into how much it costs and the trajectory of, right, the, the training costs. And so, um, yeah, this is a lot of things are gonna happen in terms of the whole training compute field because this is one of the most lucrative fields out there and you see a lot of people getting into it. Um, one last piece of news is I wrote a tweet on um, a team taking Whisper, which is OpenAI's model where they take speech audio text, audio files, and they will um, transcribe it into text. It's quite slow. It's great. It's an amazing model. Um, but yeah, it's large. If you want high accuracy, they have different models. They have a small model, you know, medium, large, etc. The large model is great accuracy, but it's huge. It takes a long time. A team recently was able to shrink it by almost six times and, it, and um, or improve the speed by six times, but shrink it by almost half. And they did it with something called knowledge distillation. And they basically, you know, took the whisper model and had to create a bunch of, of these uh, uh, texts from different audio files, like 21,000 um, hours of speech data. And they're able to retrain basically a smaller, right, more nimble model off of that uh, to kind of copy the larger model. And I think this is just an interesting example of what is happening with AI is, is um, there are novel and interesting techniques across the board where you're able to shrink models, you know, bring them down, um, improve on things. And so this is kind of like this crazy ecosystem of AI researchers, companies, et cetera, all kind of chipping in to really bring efficiency into these models. And for, at first, your models aren't that efficient. They just like kind of by brute force, sh like show something amazing, but then they get more and more efficient as more and more people try to figure out, right, how to make it uh, run faster and quicker and to be smaller. All right. Um, so anyways, that's kind of like, yeah, lots of things are always happening in the news. Um, I find it kind of fascinating to, to think about uh, the time that we are in, in the bigger picture, right? You look out, you know, in the 10 or 20 year time window. And a lot of these things we're talking about, this is really, really significant stuff. You have Starlink spaceship, you have, you know, autonomous driving, you have AI, all these things are radically changing society. Um, and to be in the midst of it and to um, really, uh, be part of it. It's, it's quite amazing. And if you can have more insight, right, the more power, more opportunities you have. Um, let's go ahead and I want to go ahead and um, take some questions from viewers. And this is the first time I'm looking at the viewer comments here. So if you have a question, go ahead, put it in all caps, put question uh, colon, and I'll try to take uh, as many as I can here. Uh, JC says, how are you feeling, Dave? Yeah, I'm feeling fantastic. Um, I'm always thankful, grateful for everything. Um, how's your family? Yeah, so um, I'm back in Austin. Um, as many of you know, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer a few months ago while we were traveling in Europe. It's been a whirlwind. Um, I spent pretty much two months full-time uh, researching, um, like probably like, you know, good six to eight hours a day, my wife also. And um, we did various kind of initial treatments. Um, we kind of approached it from all angles, kind of having an open mind. Um, kind of taking the best of what could be natural treatments, but also 
uh, existing treatments and and trying to bring them all together. We consulted with a bunch of people. Um, we ended up um, having a surgery. I think it was about a couple months ago. And uh, my wife is recovering well, and now it's more about um, preventing recurrence, and um, really kind of having uh, the right pieces in, in in place to make sure right breast cancer or cancer doesn't come back or come back in other places. So I should probably do a video kind of on the things I've learned about cancer. Um, such a fascinating topic, and there's so much development happening in, in terms of um, cancer and new approaches as well. All right, let's head to some questions here. Um, uh, Cassidy says, what do you think about Dojo in the future? Is it gonna compete with NVIDIA? Yeah, in order to, com to compete with NVIDIA, it's not just the chip, it's like their whole ecosystem of software and tools and, and stuff that allow you to do what you what you can do on their platform. It's more of a platform, NVIDIA, um, for AI development. So for Dojo to get there, it's gonna be a huge, huge undertaking. and it's, going to take many, many years in focus. I'm not sure if that's the, the, the top priority for Tesla. Tesla, I think, wants Dojo to ensure that they have the training capacity they need, um, apart from just having to rely on NVIDIA. So their biggest priority, I think, is get Dojo working with FSD, um, keep continuing to ramp it. They see, kind of, I think, Tesla as being the leader of the real world kind of foundation model for AI. And that's going to take increasingly more compute. And so Dojo can play a part with that. And then probably their next thing is they can create a cloud service where where um, other people can utilize right their Dojo um, service to train their own models. But also that perhaps Tesla can release some type of API for real world um, uh, AI. So you send in, uh, basically you you, you stream video right into an API and uh, Dojo is able to output anything you want from that video basically, right? He's able to analyze it as a human or better than a human. And so you could have a crazy amount of, of different use applications, right? For that type of API usage. So that's might be um, kind of what uh, Tesla is thinking about. Um, maybe in the long-term future, who knows what else um, they could do. Don Tang says, do you do intermittent fasting? That's a great question. Actually, I've been actually doing um, quite a bit of uh, uh, kind of, yeah, I, I've revamped my whole diet the past year, actually. Um, and I've actually brought down my body fat. I think I'm under 14%, probably 13 and a half or something around there now. I got this like, kind of super accurate body fat scale. But what I've been doing for the past six months is actually been, um, sometimes I'll skip breakfast. Um, sometimes I'll have something very light. Um, and, um, I will actually have lunch and dinner, uh, hearty meals, but I'll skip having any snack in between lunch and dinner and I'll eat dinner early as well, like before six, six o'clock or so. So I have a lot of time before I sleep. So a lot of these factors kind of like skipping breakfast often, and then not having a snack between lunch and dinner and not having dinner early, it kind of does a lot of like what intermittent fasting does. Um, and it's actually done a lot to my health the past six months. Um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with, with what's happened. Of course, it's always changing, right? Um, um, uh, Roger Stanley says, do you have any hopes that Dojo may target cancer? Yeah, I think Dojo um, is more of a physical real world um, kind of uh, um, target. 
um, they're not really trying to do like an LLM, large language model, or different types of thing. Um, they're really focused, on, I think, on the real world, on video processing, right? Video processing for neural nets. Um, so that's what, um, yeah, uh, Doja will do. In terms of AI solving cancer, I think that's a real, real possibility in the next five or 10 years. I mean, on one hand, health takes a long time to, or, or cures because of different regulations and the whole bureaucracy and health. But then on the other hand, you know, health can move fast, especially with um, AI. Um, one of the big things with cancer is it, that right now there's a, a slow feedback loop, meaning you don't know where your cancer is, how fast it's growing, and how it's really responding to things. There's no real good tests right now that can show real time what's happening with your cancer. For example, if I drink some, you know, <laughs> elixir or something, um, what happens to my cancer over the next like three days, right? There's, there's, you don't have anything right there. Like perhaps some of the best stuff is like you have a, a, a PET CT scan where you drink this, you know, um, radioactive fluorescent kind of uh, material and that will show up right in a CT scan in terms of where that radioactive glucose is, is being ingested more quickly, right? And that shows perhaps the places where you do have active cancers. But other than that, it's like to have to sh to have more real-time monitoring, right? That's gonna be, I think, one of the keys to solving cancer um, and many, many diseases. Once you can have real-time monitoring of what your body is doing and how it responds to different foods, environments, you know, medicines, et cetera, and you combine that with the power of AI to make connections, to constantly analyze, right? You're gonna have, I think, the biggest increase in medical discoveries and inventions in the history of the world in, in the shortest amount of time possible. I think, you know, it's gonna happen, we'll see. But a lot of it, yeah, you need this, these two things together, I think. You need these, this real-time monitoring aspect and you need the, the combined AI. The AI is there, right? Uh, but we need actually another um, kind of part, piece of the picture. Yeah, when do I think Starlink is going to IPO? Yeah, I was sharing that. I don't know if Starlink will IPO in the near future. I think, yeah, I think Elon's happy with what's going on with Starlink. He doesn't really want a, another public company unless he really has to. And right now there's no real benefit for SpaceX to take Starlink public because they don't need the cash, right? It just adds complexity. So I think for the time being, um, yeah, we're gonna see uh, Starlink as a private company. Um, I have a feeling that Cybertruck event will be the same day they release um, FSD 12. Um, actually, let me see if I could. Yeah, version 12. Um, there it is. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. FSD version 12, is, I think, is on a different track. Um, they're going to release it when they release it, when they're ready. It's it's much more important, I think, than the Cybertruck delivery event to time it. Um, yeah, they'll get it out as fast as they can, and they'll get it out um, when it's ready. Um, yeah. Uh, question, many cancer surgeries are done by surgeon-operated robots. Do you see FSD, yeah, coming into this realm? Um, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't say FSD, but perhaps, like, you know, if if Tesla comes up with this real-world foundation model, which they are coming up with, um, 
the idea of a foundation model is it's a model where other models and other use cases can be built upon. Like for example, you might have, let's say OpenAI has this foundation model as a large language model. The idea is you can build other use cases and other models and things on top of this crazy foundation model. So the idea of going forward, let's say five or 10 years down the road is the idea is the real, the foundation models. And right now um, it's hard to have, to say there's gonna be many different types of foundation models in the sense that these foundation models are meant to be kind of like the foundation of lots of other types of use cases and models. So right now we know of, you have the large language model as being, you know, kind of like this knowledge foundation model, right? It's, it's the whole foundation model for logic, for reasoning, for, for writing, for speaking, talking, et cetera. It's moving into multimodal, which is could be video and audio as well too, in some cases. Now with this um, uh, foundation model for LLMs, now this could change over time um, in terms of how it's being built, right? Um, with what technologies. But the idea is over the next five or 10 years, this foundation model um, for language is going to grow at such a amazing, crazy pace that it'll likely cost tens of billions of dollars per training run to, to run, to train one of these models. Um, eventually it can get even higher to the point where there'll, it'll limit the number of players who are able to train a true foundation model because you'll just need tens of billions of dollars of extra cash. Who knows, you know, in 10 years, maybe you'll need like $50 billion, right? Of extra cash or, or more just to train like one of the, these crazy, you know, foundation models. It'll be completely, you know, restrictive for most players. And that's why the idea is there'll only be a few big players in this in this space that can afford to train as large models. Of course, there will be a ton of smaller models and you have these distillations of these large models running in smaller kind of places and stuff like that, doing less you know, comprehensive tasks. But at the cutting edge will be these large language models. And a lot of these large language models, I think also will drive the smaller models and that you could distill the large language models, these larger models into smaller models easier, right? Because you're just kind of, uh, doing different processes with what they call knowledge distillation, right? You train these, you output, you know, stuff from these large models, and then you kind of uh, are able to copy the model and shrink it down to a smaller size. Um, so that's the idea on th the language front. Now, what Tesla is doing, which, and they're, they're doing something on more the physical real world front. And they're saying, they're making a big bet. They're saying that in terms of foundation models, there's gonna be a model, of a foundation model for AI with language, but there's gonna be another model. And the other model is gonna be of the physical world. And and this model of the physical world is gonna be predominantly, right? The predominant input is gonna be video. And um, Tesla's big bet is that you can't navigate the you, you can't navigate the physical real world, especially in a in a high stakes like a super real-time environment like driving with just a language model, right? It's just too slow. It's not optimized. It's just, it's language and driving are different, right? What Tesla is saying is you need a real physical world model, like AI model to be able to drive like a human or even better than a human. And what they're doing is they're approaching it almost, it's not, it's, I want to say opposite, it's just a different way. And, there, and the input mechanism isn't words, it's, it's video frames, right? And by taking video frames and understanding the world through video frames, you're building, 
you know, a, a model. And their idea is that these model, the model for the physical world is going to grow so big and become a foundation model in the sense that over time, there aren't going to be many players who are able to train um, the size of a real world foundation model. Like it could cost tens of billions of dollars right, per run. And who's, who has that money laying around? So Tesla is saying, we're going to be um, not just the first, but they're saying, uh, we don't care about the competition. We're going to make sure we are training the real world foundation model that we need for our products. We're making sure we have the right chip and hardware right, with Dojo and other stuff so we can do it even without relying on others. Um, and um, that's kind of the approach of Tesla. And it's an interesting approach because it's different. It's differentiated by all these other players right in the field, like the Google, the OpenAIs, and all these others who are doing language. Um, there's a possibility that these two models overlap, and they are going to overlap in some ways, right? Already you have language models starting to take on video and, and photo capabilities, etc. I think you might even have times where this, you know, this real-world physical model might overlap and start to take on some language, you know. Uh, features as well. Um, the most likely scenario, though, is that they might be two different foundation models good at two different things. So you have the, the language model good at reasoning and logic, writing, speaking, all this stuff, but it's not as good as navigating the physical world. Like yesterday or two days ago, I was talking about, you know, how a cheetah can 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 run around in the physical world like like in a crazy way without being able to speak a word, right? <laughs> like they don't know how to write or, or to draw or whatever, but they can navigate like crazy. I think in similar ways, this real-world foundation model is going to be able to navigate like that. Um, even though, let's say, it might not be as smart as the language model over there, um, it could navigate the, the real world like no other. And that's going to be the specialty right, of this video-focused um, real-world foundation model that Tesla develops. Um, and on top of that, you're going to see a lot of other use cases and a lot of different models and, and things come out of these foundation models. And that's kind of the theory of, of foundation models. And who knows if it's exactly going to play out like that, but that's where it's headed. And that's why these players are making the, the moves that they are making right now. That's why OpenAI is saying we're going to be spending tens of billions of dollars on, on training compute. Right? That's, they're open about it. Right, they're going to see, we need massive amounts because they're seeing themselves as that's what it's going to take to be the leader in training and building these language models. In the same way, Tesla, why are they having, why are they needing 100 exaflops by the end of next year in compute power, which is crazy? It's the same thing. It's like these foundation models for them, for the physical real world video frame input foundation models, they're going to need a ton of compute. It's the reality of what you need to build these huge models. Um, because with huge models, you get better performance and capacity, et cetera. Um, now, on top of those things, you could build other applications. So going back to this question about cancer surgeries, can they be done you know, through FSD or what Tesla's doing? Yeah, you could build another model on top of the real-world foundation model. So the real-world world foundation model provide all this stuff, and then you build a new model, kind of a custom model on top of that with extra data, with extra frames, with ex doctors doing surgeries, and, and you have simulations of surgeries and all this, and outcomes and all this stuff, and you build another use case, another model for surgeries. Um, that's what probably is going to happen, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I don't think a large language model can effectively do a surgery when you need kind of the, you need accuracy and the millimeters and you, it has to be real time. That's stuff, the, of, that's stuff that the real world physical AI models are going to do well, right? Not uh, the language models, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> anyways, yeah, uh, 
there goes a rant on uh, foundation models. Um, yeah, but I think it's important to understand what's going on with AI. I mean, this is this this is what's happening, right? Who are the the work? Who are the people who are gonna be? Um, uh, um, who are the main players for the foundation model wars, right? So on the physical real world uh, side, you have Tesla, and right now you really don't have any other major players right now in this the physical real world foundation model battle. Um, yeah, it's kind of almost I want to say it's, it's an ignored field, but it just um, yeah it just doesn't have the interest right that on the other side right language does. Um, in, and I, partly is it, language in some ways is easier, is quicker. There's more results and there's more like use cases in terms of like what you could do immediately, like knowledge work, right? But on this, um, on the knowledge language side, right, of foundation models, right, you have OpenAI as, has jumped out as the leader, right? Um, they're ready to spend, you know, tens of billions of dollars on compute just to train, right, their GPT, not just five, but six or seven, whatever in the future. Um, then you have Google, which I think is the second place. Um, even though their capacities aren't really that great, they have the the most I think uh, at stake, right? They have um, if they lose in the large language model wars, they lose uh, almost everything. I mean, they have uh, YouTube, but they lose search um, and lots of things. So um, Google, uh, they still have I think you know um, uh, decent chops. They can come up with a good model. And they can spend the money that they, they need to spend. I think next year we're going to start to see Google really come out with some decent models and integrate it for free within their products with Google Search, with Gmail, with their Docs, with um, with Android. You're going to have a free, I think, uh, a large language model that's capable on Android phones next year. It's going to be interesting. Um, and then you've got um, so those. I think OpenAI and Google um, are probably the, the the two main players right now. Um, you have a bunch of another class of players which are all striving to maybe try to become one of those top foundation model players in the future. Um, you have Anthropic with their Cloud Two model. You have um, uh, you have Apple with you know their Apple Android devices, etc. You have Grok with XAI, right? They're saying, hey, we want to be one of these like you know foundation model people, and whoever succeeds in really pushing the envelope with foundation models, like this is the next era of intelligence, right? This is, these are the companies that are gonna drive the next era of, of intelligence on tap, where you can access intelligence um, through the cloud or through local devices at a scale and cap capacity and capability that have never been seen before. And um, these companies are gonna be able to monetize that ability in some crazy ways. And we're gonna see, um, I think, some of the largest market cap companies in the history of the world be formed through, you know, basically the use of intelligence. They're selling intelligence. Don't count out Amazon completely. You know, they've got some decent, you know, chops in terms of um, their their business model. Uh, Microsoft, even though they're partnered with OpenAI, they still can do their own stuff too. But yeah, you can have a lot of different players. Um, but a lot is at stake, and a lot of these players um, understand um, a lot of that too. Um, okay, Purple um, Gotcha says, uh, OpenAI is raising money from Microsoft for super intelligence development. It's going to be a winner-takes-all event if it succeeds. What do you think Elon and Tesla can do? Uh, Tesla 
can do in the current situation. Yeah, again, um, I was talking about these foundation models. You know, Tesla is set on really focusing on the real world foundation model and Grok x.ai is focused on the language. Um, and yeah, we're gonna see probably Grok inside the Tesla humanoid robot together with Tesla's real world foundation model. Um, it's going to be interesting stuff. I mean, uh, Tesla is in the thick of it. Elon is in the thick of it. XAI is in the thick of it. Um, this is crazy times, not just with AGI, but what, what happens after AGI, right? Um, that is the question. And that's, I think, one of the big reasons why Elon has gotten into X.AI big. Farzad, uh, great to see you doing lives again. Yeah, uh, Farzad, I think he, Farzad, doesn't live too far from me. Um, we should get together. We should have some joint live streams or something. That'd be fun. Um, all right. How does FSC model compare to Google Earth and Maps data? Uh, I don't think you can really compare them. Um, yeah, Google. Earth, Google Maps, they're just like kind of like, you know, snapshots, one, one frame here or there of different scenes. Like what we're talking about in terms of FSD model, it's not just, um, we're not trying to video record the whole world, right? That's not how it's trained. But the idea is like it, it can view the world just like a human views the world and like understanding the world. Um, so you can go to a new place and completely understand the new place know how to interact right with that new world in order to do that it'll need a massive amount right of of training and data to come in which is video frame data to come in and it trains off of that and then it learns right how how to navigate those situations and environments um yeah completely different it's it's like google maps or google earth like times like a billion in terms of its complexity right and capabilities yeah fsc is definitely um on another uh dimension i think um uh, Farzad says, yeah, we should, I'm down. Yeah, definitely we should get together. Um, that'd be fun. Um, I think, yeah, I, I played tennis with Farzad. Uh, I'd love to do it again. <laughs> yeah, I love tennis actually. Um, anyways, um, uh, Lee Allison says, uh, follow up, any particular reason an Optimus robot could not be a near perfect chauffeur and make FSD unnecessary. How about an Optimus Surgeon? Yeah, um, no, Optimus Surgeon is definitely a possibility too. It just needs to know what to do with surgeries. That you kind of need a lot of fine tuning or an extra, another model, right, to work on. Um, can Optimus Robot be a near perfect chauffeur? Yeah, I mean, I don't think if, if, FS, if Tesla solves FSD, right, in terms of through cameras, then they're gonna be able to solve FSD through the Optimus robots, you know, video cameras. Cause it's the same hardware and it's the same software, right? Um, and yeah, I think they can do it. I don't think it's that much more difficult than what they're already doing. So yeah, I think an Optimus robot can be able to jump into um, IC cars or non FSD cars and be able to drive them in the future. Um, yeah, it's gonna be, uh, Crazy, crazy stuff, man. Can you imagine what else like a humanoid robot will be able to do? If, it could, if a humanoid robot can actually jump into a car and drive it, right? <laughs> like what else can a humanoid robot really do? It's like the, the possibilities are insane, you know? Um, yeah. Um, 
we're going to see human or ro robots chauffeur kids or just walk with kids, hold kids, I don't know, hold babies, play tennis with me, um, form soccer teams to play against. I don't know. It's going to be crazy um, in terms of, of what human or robots are going to do. Uh, Realist says, do you think Elon should have created X.A under a Tesla holding? After all, Tesla is funding many of re Elon's recent projects. Uh, Tesla, I mean, Tesla, I mean, sure, Elon sold Tesla stock, yeah. So it's his cash now, it's his money that he, could, he can fund whatever. So um, no, yeah, it's like, here's, here's what I think is, um, this is this is kind of a hot take. I don't know if, if it's 100% true, but here's, here's what, I, what I think. I think Elon could have um, made Grok under Tesla. I mean, he could have made Grok under anything, right? He could have made it under whatever company he chose. He could have made it under Neuralink or under a new company, right? Or who knows? It's up to him, whatever, wherever he chooses to do what he wants to do, right? Whatever company. Now that said, it's like when you're thinking about, okay, should I release this new language model, which he's not going to release something that's like a fine-tuned, not, he's not going to release something that's built on OpenAI or it's built on Google's model. Like Elon's going to get into it because he wants to be, he thinks there's some existential risk in terms of letting Google and OpenAI become the dominant right, foundation model leaders over the next 50, 100 years. If you let them go to a certain point, you can't catch up to them. Because if they're like spending $50 billion on a training run, let's say 10 years down the road, you don't have that money just to, 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 to train something. You don't have the business model to do that, right? So what you do is you need to catch them now. You need to catch them, make a business model that you're able to fund these training runs for increasingly large language models. That's how you're able to catch a Google. That's how you're able to catch an open AI. You don't catch them by waiting 10 years and thinking that you could just spend, you know, $100 billion to catch them. It, you won't. It doesn't work like that, right? Um, so Elon, in my opinion, Elon's thought is it's existential. He doesn't want a world that's run by Google and OpenAI's foundation models, right? He doesn't align with their values. He doesn't like what they're doing. He doesn't trust them, right? He thinks that there could be a better model, a more trustworthy model, a model that aligns better with his values and a, a model where he sees less existential risk with being under. Right? He clearly understands the risks, the humanity scale risks of artificial general intelligence and that potentially leading to artificial super intelligence. Right? The question is, what artificial general intelligence and potentially super intelligence do, does the world um, is going to live in and how dangerous, what's the risk are. And he doesn't want to, he's not happy with the risks he sees with OpenAI and Google. Thus, he wants a new alternative. The new alternative is Grok. It's not, Grok is not like a silly, uh, just pet project. Grok is the real thing, meaning it's a silly project in its current kind of like form where it, it roasts people and it does some stuff and it can't do what OpenAI GPT-4 can do or GPT-4V can do, et cetera, sure. But what Elon is doing is he's setting up something that it's, not, it's, it's, it's no joke. He's trying to aim to be the leader in artificial general and super intelligent eventually, right? He's not gonna start Grok 
if he doesn't think he has a chance or he he's not motivated to to be to be one of the main players with OpenAI and Google, if not the main player, right? That's, I think, Elon's intention. Um, and in order to do so, in order to make Grok have that type of ability or chance to do that, um, I think Elon felt like he needed to give some equity away to the, to, to the best minds in AI research. And in order to do that, like equity and kind of like Tesla or equity and Twitter maybe wasn't enough, you know? Um, it maybe wasn't as exciting enough or focused enough, right? And as a result, I think he chose to make a separate company um, outside of X, and it's called X.AI. I think it's a separate structure. I'm not sure if X Twitter, former Twitter, owns part of X.AI or not. I don't think all that ownership structure has been revealed or not. But in my opinion, it's a separate ownership, ownership structure. It's a new company. 99.99% of the people out there don't even know that Elon has started a new company called X.AI, right? They know about X as Twitter, but they don't know this new company started. They don't even know that this new company is perhaps is one of the most ambitious companies out there because of its goal to take on, right, the open AIs and the Googles of the world for the next generation of what uh, artificial intelligence brings, right? So, um, should Elon have tried to put it under Twitter, uh, Tesla? I think he owns this too little bit. He, he doesn't own enough of Tesla to be able to feel confident enough that, that he could control it. He could direct it in the way he wants to. Meaning you own less than 20% of Tesla, like and you put the real world foundation model AI right in Tesla, and now you stick the language foundation model. And let's say hypothetically it works and it's better than if long-term, it's a leader, you stick it all under Tesla and your your ownership just drops over time because right, you need to sell some stock to do stuff with. So you own like 10% or less than 10%. People are fickle, public markets are fickle, these you know index funds or, or these you know hedge funds all over the place, institutions own a lot more than you. Like what's the future of that, right? Like he doesn't have super, you know, voting power, right? Super shares at all. He has normal shares. So he doesn't have 50 51% of the voting control of Tesla. He can't do what he wants to do clearly with, you know, the direction of everything 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And in that sense, I think in Elon's mind, it makes sense to separate these two things, right? Separate the humanoid robots, the physical world, real, real world AI, and also separate the language, the logic, reasoning, the whole, you know, other uh, language, uh, real model foundation, uh, language foundation model, separate that into a different company where he could have more direct control. This is a better kind of system of accountability where he could feel more at ease in terms of how things will progress and he could steer them in the right direction, right? So anyways, that's my take. Do I wish it was all under Tesla? Yeah, I mean, well, in terms of my f financial uh, kind of status holdings, sure. I mean, I would prefer, like, I would love X.AI to be in Tesla. But in terms of the future of the world, I understand Elon's reason. I actually agree with that. I think, yeah, it should be probably separate. It's just, in a way, it, if you're going to put that much power into one company, you need to have the the, the accountability and the structure um to be able to steer it in the right way. You don't want it to be just voted on by just shareholders or institutions, right? By Wall Street.
to determine the future of the world. Um, that's like, yeah, that's a, that's a bad situation to be in. All right, uh, Karsten Hench says, do you think end-to-end -end training makes it easier to adapt FSD to other parts of the world faster? Software in Germany is building essentially the same as four years ago and begins to fall behind. Yeah, um, for sure, end-to-end -end is going to make, I think, the progress faster. And here's why. So before they had to rely a lot on heuristics. So let me give you an example. Like when you're driving with the current FSD version 11.4 or something build, like sometimes when you change lanes or you merge on a on a faster lane, like it just kind of like floors it, right? And then other times it kind of makes you stop or it's jerky. There's different things that does. And a lot of that is because it's based off of heuristics, meaning what it's coded to say, okay, if it changes into a faster going or a fast lane, then basically, I don't say floor, but go accelerate very fast, even though that, type of behavior is different than what humans would typically do in terms of how fast it accelerates. Due to certain kind of safety and different reasons, Tesla has decided to like put that hand-coded into um, be the behavior. And there are a lot of examples of that where there are hand-coded like, heuristic um, code and rules in the code that cause the, the behavior of the car to, to act different than what a human would do. What version 12, is supposed to be able to do with end-to-end -end training is it takes the actual behavior of drivers, of human drivers, and that becomes the training. And in a way, that's what the FSC version 12 is modeled after. So you're gonna have it drive just like that. Like that's what it's gonna drive. I think, I mean, this is, this is the, the promise of E12, which is, you're not gonna have those jerky acceleration moments, there's jerky stops, all this stuff. It's actually gonna feel like a human because it was trained off of data of human driving. That's where it gets its rules and instructions from, right? In a sense. Um, and because of that, you're gonna see an absence of a lot of the jerkiness and a lot of the crazy stuff, other stuff that happens, let's say with, with earlier versions of FSD. And so in a way, it's gonna take this huge superhuman jump up in terms of its, its comfort, its maneuverability, its ability to drive like a human. On the flip side, you got some new challenges now because a lot of the heuristics and extra hand code was put in there because they were tricky situations. Maybe they couldn't figure out a way for just neural nets to, to work it out by themselves. So what you're doing is um, those are kind of safety nets in a way, right, that Tesla put in. You're taking off those safety nets and now you're putting, you're saying, okay, drive like a human and figure it out like a human would in a sense. And in a lot of cases, it's gonna be able to do it. In some cases, it might not be able to do it. So you're looking at the introduction of some other kind of errors or, or situations that could be, yeah, it could be very dangerous. So when you are driving V12 eventually, the first releases especially, you need to be extra cautious to understand this is a different animal. It's gonna have different behaviors. It's gonna put you at ease because it's gonna drive like a human. Most of the time, they're gonna be like crazy, but at times it's gonna not know what to do or make the wrong decisions. And so it's gonna be different behavior than V12, or V11. Um, and that's why I think Tesla made the big move to wanting and needing to boost up their compute power, their compute 
you know, uh, uh, clusters where they're scaling to 100 exaflops by end of next year is because they realize that when they search to end to end, they need the, the amount of data they need to process, the amount of video frames coming in, they just, it, the, it's so much greater in terms of the amount of data in order to get and to cover all the cases they need to cover um, that they need needed to radically um, expedite and accelerate their training compute plans. What does this mean going forward is, yeah, you're going to see, I think, FSD eventually reach this place where it's going to be able to adapt to new markets rather fast. I mean, you know, 100 times faster than what a, the old V11 hand-coded model could have produced, right? Um, but yeah, it's going to require a lot more going forward. These real-world foundation models trained through video input, I mean, it's going to, like, it, there's, it's not this, this, you fix it all and it's all done. Right, we're gonna need more and more and more video. Like 100 exaflops is gonna seem like tiny, you know, in a few years, or five years. Like we're gonna be like, oh my gosh, Tesla only had 100 exaflops of compute. That's crazy, right? Uh, because the amount of compute that's gonna be used in these models is gonna be so huge, and they're gonna be that much more capable going forward. Um, <clears throat> All right, um, so let's take on uh, another one last question before I close the stream. How do you think classes K to 12 college and learning will change with the progression of LLMs? Yeah, I, this is actually something I think about every day. Um, and when I look at my kids, like, I'm actually just like using a lot of ChatGPT and AI with my kids. Um, ChatGPT, the app has a cool audio function now that I use in the car with the kids a lot. I drive them around, I ask questions and they get to learn. I tell the AI to talk as like a 10 year old, even though my kids are like five and eight. Um, when I tell the ChatGPT to talk to them like five or eight, then they, it, it dumbs it down too much, right? So 10 year old is good. And we talk about all these different things. My kids like love it. They are, are fascinated by it all this top i think that's one of the amazing things about llms is like it's able to summarize and pare down and explain stuff according to different levels and different approaches different languages different things and that is one of the keys to education once you get to this place where you it's too hard you don't understand what's going on the professor is talking over your head you're, you're going doing math problems you don't understand that's like the death of education right that's when you stop learning and education stops becoming fun and it starts becoming a chore and you start to hate it right what you want to do is you want to get into the sweet spot of being in, in this flow state where you're able to understand what's going on. You're able to understand what's being taught. You like what's being taught. And um, I think there's like a, I'll borrow from a language learning concept, which is comprehensible input. I think you want about 70 to 80%, maybe 90% of the stuff that what you hear, you, you understand. Right? You can have 10, 20% no more that you don't understand in the sentences or in the concepts and you'll be, your brain will be able to figure out in a comfortable way. However, once the input that comes in is less than let's say 70% comprehensible by your brain, then you start to enter a, a stage of tension, of frustration, and that kind of short circuits the learning process. So the promise I think of LLMs, so one of the great benefits is that you could always try to maintain that level of comprehensible input for the student at their level, meaning it's always at least 70% comprehensibly, um, co or the input is at least 70 to 80% um, 
comprehensible right to the student which keeps their interest and engagement and keeps them always learning and you can do that across the board in current classrooms you can't do that right every person is at a different level in terms of how they understand how much of the material they understand what length what types of levels of language and, and examples they understand everything's different so you lose a big portion of your audience of your student student class right and I don't know, I think we're gonna look back at learning education and we're like, how in the world did we think that we could stick 30 kids in a class for 12 years and think that we can, that's the optimal form of education, right? We're gonna look at that, we'll be like, our minds will be boggled that how could humans actually think that that was optimal or efficient, right? And it'll become clear that the most optimal and efficient uh, way to learn is to continuously match Right, the level of comprehension to that student with engaging in interesting topics right, that they wanna learn at, and yeah, that, that they're motivated to learn. Keep that level, right, 70, 90% or so, keep them engaged, and you'll see this crazy, I think, you know, revival of edu education. And um, I think that's the future, and LLMs definitely have a huge role to play. I mean, we're just getting started in all of this. All right, guys, I hope that was fun. I was fun for me, hanging out. Um, we'll see you guys in my next live stream. Have a good week. Uh, see you, bye.